Hello hobos, welcome back. I'm Julie McDowell, nuclear journalist and atomic adventurer. And this week I'm taking you with me underground to a huge nuclear bunker in Prague. I'll tell you its story, how it would have worked if the bomb had dropped, and play you a few clips I recorded whilst I was down there. I was lucky enough to be given a free private tour, and this allowed me, of course, the freedom to take photos and to ask as many questions as I liked, and to record the answers without any interference. So let me say thank you to Prague Communism Tour, who took me down there, answered all my questions, and didn't charge me for it. I visited in December, so that was part of my huge nuclear trip, which took in Chernobyl, Budapest and Prague. Chernobyl, of course, was the most fascinating uh, and I've done a podcast about that trip. If you take a look in the archive, there's a one there's one called Chernobyl uh, special episode. So Chernobyl was the most fascinating. Let's not forget Kiev. It's, I was based in Kiev when I went to Chernobyl. And I always forget Kiev. That itself, of course, it was the, the Soviet Union's third largest city. Of course, it's crammed with Cold War history, not least of which is the metro system. The deepest metro system in the world is in Kiev, uh, the Arsenalna station. And of course, all of those uh, stations can be used as nuclear bunkers. Likewise with Prague, which we're talking about today, its metro system is also a bunker. So, well, Chernobyl was the most fascinating. Uh, Budapest, which was our next stop, did the best food. Uh, Check out the restaurant Komeche Soa if you're ever in town. But you must remember the small detail of booking about 15 years in advance. One of my friends kept nagging me, you must remember to book in advance. I kept thinking, yes, yes, I'll do it, I'll do it. And I left the booking till about a month beforehand and all we could get was a tiny one-hour slot for lunch. (laughs) So do book in advance if you go there, it's lovely. Uh, So best food was in Budapest. Most fascinating aspects were in Chernobyl. Deepest metro station, which doubled as a nuclear bunker, was in Kiev. But Prague, Prague was also fascinating because of the sheer number of bunkers. Prague is absolutely jam-packed with them. I've been told that it has about 800 in total, ranging from small shelters built in the basements of apartment blocks to huge bunkers for thousands, the largest of which as we said, is the city's metro system. Prague's metro was built in the 70s and has over 60 stations, so you can imagine it has substantial capacity down there to shelter people. The idea was that if you ever heard the siren blare, then you ran to your nearest shelter. And for many people out and about in the city, that would have been their nearby metro station. And spaces there were available on a first-come, first-served basis cuts down on the bureaucracy I suppose but it would have created a mad panicked dash for shelter and it's that element of panic and rush and hurry that really worried me about the bunker we're talking about today. It was a civilian bunker built deep beneath Parukarka Hill I'm sorry any Czech speakers if I'm pronouncing that wrong Parukarka Hill Uh, So it was buried deep underneath the hill, and as with the metro system, if you wanted shelter there, you had to bloody well run for it. 
Spaces there were on a first-come, first-served basis. The bunker could hold about 5,000 people, and there was no such thing as priority classes, no such thing as chivalry. Perhaps the sound of a nuclear siren wipes out any concept of chivalry. So there were no special rules for women and children, no such thing as women and children first, no special allowances for pregnant ladies, uh, the elderly, the disabled. It was simply every man for himself. You hear the siren and you run. Whoever gets there first gets a space in the shelter. Now, let me just say that's not a criticism of Czechoslovakia. I'm from Britain and we had nothing for our population. Nothing at all, whether for strapping strong men or frail old ladies. At least um, Czechoslovakia, as it then was, provided shelter for its people. We had nothing in Britain for our people. Now, let's talk about this notion of first come, first served. It's probably the most fair way to allocate bunker space. It's probably the only workable way. You can't turn people away if you have a few minutes warning, saying, sorry, we need to check the lists. People will be running there in a panic, so first come, first served is probably the only system that makes any kind of sense. But it also surely would have created the potential for a lot of trouble, because when we entered the bunker, the entrance to it did seem very treacherous. And I'll explain. British bunkers, the ones built to hold large numbers at least, tended to have long sloping tunnels as their entrance. So... If there was a sudden panic and stampede for entrance, it wouldn't be too dangerous. People would run down the the slope. Not so with this Prague bunker, though, where the entrance is via a steep, narrow, spiral staircase. And it was far too easy to imagine panic and a stampede, people tripping over one another, people falling, a crush developing on the stairs... I thought, of course, of the worst civilian disaster in Britain during the Second World War, the Bethnal Green Tube disaster in 1943. That's where the siren sounded one evening and people rushed into the station for shelter. But someone tripped on the stairs. Other people behind her fell and a terrible crush ensued. 173 people died on the stairs in the entrance to the tube station. So I thought of that, obviously. As we went down the winding steps to this bunker underneath Parakurka Hill, we went down and down, round and round, for 84 steps, which took us 50 feet underground. If a nuclear missile was incoming and there were minutes to spare, how could there be anything but a terrible panic on those narrow stairs? If you want to see what the staircase looks like, uh, take a look at my YouTube channel, which is also called The Atomic Hobo. I uploaded a video of that staircase so you can see exactly how it looked. So take a look. Channel's called The Atomic Hobo. I've also recently uploaded all my podcast episodes there as people have been telling me that they prefer to listen via YouTube. I suppose YouTube is also easier to access. You don't need to download iTunes, um, for example. So if you prefer that, the podcasts are now all on YouTube and I'll upload every subsequent one on YouTube per week. So pop across there and subscribe, if that's your thing. So back to this bunker in Prague. What was the purpose of the bunker? Once you've gathered thousands of civilians down there, and once the huge blast doors have been shut, what happens then? Well, this is where things get really interesting, because 
let's compare it with Britain, for example. British bunkers were for the elite only. As we discussed earlier, there was no provision for the population. The nuclear bunkers which exist in Britain, the large nuclear bunkers were all for the military or the the politicians. There was nothing, not a peep, for civilians, unless you did it yourself. Most of the bunkers that I visited were for scattered regional government across Britain, where local politicians with their advisors would go, see out the nuclear war, and then try and administer their little chunk of Britain after the war. So these bunkers, with their long sloping tunnels as entrances, the inhabitants there, the politicians and their experts, they would have been in there for about 30 days, living there and working there, waiting for the worst to be over, waiting for the radiation levels to recede. So because it was a living space, there were dormitories and canteens, there were supplies of food and water, they would have lived there for about a month. But not so with Prague. This huge civilian bunker wasn't designed for any kind of long-term living. So there were no beds, there were no showers, there were no canteens. Instead, the people, the civilians who'd managed to get some space in there, they would have squatted there for about three days, waiting for the radiation levels to reduce. Then they'd don flimsy radiation suits and some gas masks, and they'd emerge and be loaded onto buses and taken out into the countryside or the forests, where, in theory, of course, there was safety. Here's a clip from my guide, Ivan Gallic, who explains this. So, uh, the bunker was designed for up to 5,000 people being squeezed down here, having half a squirt per person. Very important is, this was not a place where people would be stuck down for 10 years and then you go shooting zombies outside, like you always can see in the horror <laughs> movies or the Fallout 4 video game. Uh, this was supposed to be for a few days, yeah? Three days, yeah? Here inside, people are supposed to uh, survive the nuclear blast, which is there outside this bank, yeah, the blast wave. And after these few days, when the radiation goes down lower, people will be evacuated from here, from the destroyed city, with a gas mask on, yeah? Not to breathe in any of the fallout, yeah, with the rain jacket, yeah? Away from the destroyed city to the other part of the country, like filled and forests, which have not been destroyed. Where many of them probably gonna starve to death, because there's no supermarkets anymore to buy food. So we know the bunker didn't have the luxury of dormitories or canteen space because you weren't supposed to be living there for any length of time. It was really just a place to hunker down until the radiation had decreased. So no dormitories, no canteen, but it was not so barbaric that it did not at least have toilets and wash basins. But before I tell you about the link between these bunker toilets and suicide, let me quickly thank everyone who supports the podcast. As you know, I've got a Patreon account and you can donate money there in exchange for nuclear rewards. I've actually added a new reward. Uh, I did that this morning. If you sign up to what's called Grapple, all my nuclear rewards are named after nuclear tests. If you sign up to Grapple, you get things like uh, postcards from all the nuclear sites I visit, access to a private Facebook group where we discuss the nuclear topics, and I share photos and documents I've gathered in the archives. You can also nominate a podcast episode, but I've added a new reward this morning, which is access to a special monthly podcast. So once a month, I'll do a special extended episode. 
and you'll get access to this if you're signed up for the grapple reward so take a look at my patreon it's at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo i've now got 32 people supporting me through patreon which just knocks my socks off it's great i'm so thankful to everyone who's giving a bit of their hard-earned cash each month to keep the podcast going um, but if you don't want to commit to a set amount every month, you can make a one-off payment through PayPal. Uh, again, I did that this morning. I've set up a wee PayPal button, which you can click and make a, a quick one-off payment, any amount you like. So just Google paypal.me forward slash Atomic Hobo, and you can send anything you like to the Atomic Hobo podcast to keep things going. I'm hugely grateful to everyone who contributes to my nuclear work. <laughs> So let's change the topic from dirty money to the slightly less dirty topic of toilets. When we were exploring the Prague bunker, which was quite eerie, it's a huge bunker, as we've said, built to accommodate 5,000 people. But there were just three of us down there, uh, me, David, my husband, and Ivan, the guide. So... As we were walking through the corridors, he took us into the toilet block and everything looked normal. A bit grim, of course. Toilet blocks aren't ever pleasant places to be. And this one, of course, wasn't equipped with uh, mood lighting and fancy soap and hand cream, etc. Certainly didn't have your Dyson hand dryers. It was just very basic and grubby looking, as you'd expect bunker toilets to be. So everything looked normal, if a bit grubby, until Ivan drew our attention to a special feature of the toilet block. And I'd never heard of this before. Maybe other people have. Perhaps those who work in prisons might know about it. A few people did mention on Twitter that they've seen similar things in prisons. Ivan said, and I've covered this topic in a podcast called Panic in the Bunker, that when thousands of people are enclosed together in such a stressful situation... And what could be more stressful than being in a nuclear bunker whilst Armageddon rages above you? He said, when people are enclosed in such a situation, you might expect panic to erupt. People running amok, violence, attempts at self-harm, perhaps even attempts at suicide. The authorities, again, as my previous podcast Panic in the Bunker says, were keenly aware of this. And they realised that measures would have to be taken in these huge bunkers to stop this. The Panic in the Bunker episode focuses on American bunkers, some of which were equipped with straitjackets, weaponry or tranquilizers. This bunker in Prague had a slightly different approach. They feared self-harm and suicide. And so they realised if someone is going to commit such acts, they will probably do it in a quiet place, a secluded place. And of course, in a crowded bunker... The only private space would be a toilet cubicle. And so they had to neutralise that private space. They had to remove the temptation or the ability, rather, to commit suicide. They had to, as far as possible, make it difficult to commit suicide in that private space. So they took the doors off the toilet cubicles. That's right, there were no doors on the toilet cubicles, so you couldn't hides or lock yourself away. There would probably have been a curtain across the cubicle to give you some kind of privacy, and I've seen that in German nuclear bunkers. Um, Someone very kindly on Twitter sent me a photograph of this. It's from a bunker in Nuremberg, and 
the toilet cubicles have. It looks like uh, shower curtains across each one. And that was done for the same purpose, to deter suicide. So you couldn't lock yourself away in the toilet cubicle. There were no doors. Further attempts were made to lessen the risk of suicide. For example, the string that you would pull to activate the flush, that was deliberately very thin and short, so you couldn't make a noose from it, you couldn't use it as a ligature. And the mirrors above the sinks weren't made of glass, but were made of highly polished metal, so there was no way to shatter the glass and use that to slash yourself or to attack someone else. Here's a clip where Ivan takes us into that miserable toilet block. Uh, toilets, six toilets per section, six toilets per 1,000 people approximately. Is the uh, original set of toilets off record, I think with the original smell as well. Uh, the toilets have uh, doors, but they were put later here. Originally in bankers, also in kind of bomb shelters, you've been to other ones, they never have those, only the shower curtains, so people cannot lock themselves inside, be hiding or make suicide. Like in prisons, for example, in case of a panic attack. Mm. So the string on the flush was very thin, so you cannot hang themselves on it. And the mirror was not a mirror, but polished metal, so people can break it. And the glass pieces is a knife to cut the veins or kill somebody else in case they're an amok down here. So if you lock too many people on the too small space for too long time, they're really going nuts. I was um, strangely horrified when I heard about this, about these measures put in place to deter suicide in the toilet. I don't know why. Nuclear war... Of course, is an absolutely horrific topic. It's the most horrific thing. So I don't know why I was shocked or particularly disturbed, but I was. Maybe it's because a suicide, if you're in a terrible state of mind, if you're utterly desperate and terrified, as you would be in that situation, and helpless, maybe seems like the only way you have left of exercising some kind of control. You can decide whether or not to cope with this nuclear war with this new and dreadful world, but even that is being taken away from you. Maybe that's what it is, but I was quite shaken by this. But then, as I said, people spoke to me on Twitter about it and said, yeah, yeah, I've seen that in other bunkers. Yeah, I've seen that happen in prisons. It's not a particularly new thing, but to me, it it was new and very, very disturbing. When we talked about evacuating people, when we said after a few days people would be loaded onto buses and taken to presumed safety, they would have put on um, radiation suits and these suits weren't anything particularly fancy. We saw some examples down in the bunker and there are pictures of all of these. There are pictures actually of the whole bunker on my Facebook page, which is Nuclear Britain. If you go into the albums section, um, it will be there. There's a whole album devoted to the Prague bunkers. I visited three in Prague, four if you include the metro, and I'll do podcasts on all of them in the future, but for now we're just focusing on this one, the Parakura Hill one, Uh, and there are plenty of pictures of the radiation suits. The military-grade ones which are there are, of course, very fancy, but the civilian ones were quite flimsy. They looked just like plastic raincoats. They looked like very flimsy plastic raincoats that you would get in Primark, or that if you moved too suddenly or brushed against something, they would easily tear. That's certainly how flimsy they looked. So the civilians would don these, what looked like raincoats. They would also put plastic bags over their hands and over their boots. And then on the head, you would put your gas mask, which would have been measured for. Children at school were often measured for gas masks to make sure they knew their size. 
so in an emergency you could quickly grab the right one for yourself. You would put your gas mask on and then you would put up the hood of this raincoat and you would run from the bunker to the bus and then the bus takes you to safety. That's theory, of course. Whether that would have worked in practice is highly doubtful. I can't imagine that a major city like Prague would have had accessible roads that a bus could easily make its way through. Surely the whole place would be rubble. And then, as we know, you can't just spirit people away to the countryside, assuming that the countryside is safe. Fallout goes wherever the wind takes it, so you can't assume that because somewhere is the countryside or a forest, it's going to be safe. Nonetheless, that was the idea for citizens of Prague. Hide out in the bunker for a few days, if you get a space. Then after a few days, put on your raincoat and put the plastic bags on over your hands and feet. Put on your nicely fitting gas mask. Make a run for the bus and you'll be taken away to the countryside. So that's what would have happened in Prague. The civilians at least had a bunker over their heads. Unlike us in Britain, we'd have had mattresses and kitchen tables over our heads. So we're finished with Prague for this week. Uh, Let me remind you, on Tuesday, that's Tuesday the 28th of August at 8pm, we're having our next nuclear film night. Uh, It's the day after. Uh, You can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell and under the hashtag the day after, we will all chip in our thoughts and our comments. Same goes for Facebook if you're not on Twitter. I've got a Facebook page which is called Nuclear Britain. I will start a thread there on Tuesday night. And if you want to join in on Facebook, uh, we can chat and comment on that thread about the day after. What I'm also going to do is um, do a podcast. So that's next week's podcast will be on the day after. I will also include the best uh, comments that I've received about the film or that I've found about the film on Twitter and Facebook. So let's watch the day after. And I'm going to try as far as I can and be fair with it and not just keep being a a thread snob and saying, oh, it's not as good as the threads. It's different, of course. It's different. So let's watch it on Tuesday and hopefully I'll try and come to it with a fair and open mind. So that's Tuesday night, 8pm, 8pm GMT, of course. And let me finish this week by thanking the patrons who contribute to my podcast. Of course, if you want to chip in some money towards the podcast and you don't want to commit to a monthly payment, you can go to my PayPal link, which is paypal.me forward slash atomic hobo. And you can contribute anything you like to the podcast as a one-off payment. All donations, of course, very, very gratefully received. I'm always so pleased and flattered and always a bit surprised (laughs) when when people contribute. But thank you, everyone who does, particularly all my lovely patrons who set up monthly payments for which they get cool nuclear rewards. Special thanks goes to Ben Capper, Claire Brennan, Gordy McNair, Kieran Taylor, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Phil Catling, Sean Judge, Simon Allison, who's our latest patron. Welcome, Simon, and thank you. Also, Steve Sace, Wynn Grant, Brian Outlaw, Colin McGee, Damien Ryan, Douglas Greenshields, Peter Lee, Richard Grundy, Sean Milson, Peter Mars, Sarah Williams, Jonathan Abelins, and Lainey Peterson. And remember, if you sign up to my new level of reward, you get access to a monthly podcast and let me also remind those who've signed up to the Vulcan level if you sign up to Vulcan level or above that's one two three four that's four people you get the nuclear reward of being able to nominate a podcast episode so please do email me or contact me through twitter if you've got a specific idea you'd like me to cover uh, contact me at any time of course you don't need to use it up by a certain time but um if you're paying for it take advantage of it you can uh, nominate a topic for a podcast episode and as long as it's feasible i'll do it 
So that's us for this week. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember, we're now on YouTube, Atomic Hobo on YouTube. So that's us for this week. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, Nuclear Film Night on Tuesday. And then next week's podcast will be about the film The Day After. And we'll be back next week to discuss The Day After, hopefully with open minds and not just thinking of it as a secondhand thread. (laughs) I blame Steve Gutenberg. I can't take a nuclear war film seriously with the... the guy in it from Three Men and a Baby. But I'll try. I'll try to watch it on Tuesday, being neutral and fair and open-minded, <laughs> despite Steve Gutenberg. So join me on Tuesday night if you can, and we'll be back next week on Sunday with another podcast. Bye for now. Bye.